Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about the metaverse, what will happen to society. We bring you more old doggerel. We discover that goldfish can learn to drive, but should they? Once again, Paul tries to stump the older dog, me, and we define the metaverse, just in case you were confused by our ramble. The old dog's interview is with Rich Scheidner, a guy who is both a very funny comedian and a very funny comedy writer. Stay with us. Well, Paul, mm-hmm. is anything on your mind today? As a matter of fact, I was thinking about one of the pod nuggets from today's episode about the metaverse. Yep. Now, this is kind of a scary concept, my friend. Uh, The idea of the metaverse, as I understand it, is you can construct um, an alternate life that uh, plays out digitally. Yeah. Um, You find this subject scary? Oh, really scary. Yes. Um, I think that it's not so much uh, that I'm scared for myself or perhaps for you, but what does that mean for society if everybody is just sitting in the dark with their virtual reality goggles on, playing themselves in a metaverse. What happens to society? Good question, but I'll tell you, we're going to find out because it Mm. is going to be happening. I think that, you know, people like you and like me that are enjoying the reality of their life won't be tempted maybe to construct this parallel life, but people that are unhappy, unhappy Mm. in their relationships, unhappy at work, uh, are going to be tempted to totally submerge themselves in this alternate reality that they can manipulate. Now, that's kind of scary. Yeah, it should be scary, I think, yeah. because it takes out of the equation at least the possibility of a person improving their lives, uh, finding a better way to live. And it also takes out of the equation the function that society plays in helping one another to live a better life. Or in getting some help and finding mm-hmm. a way to get out of this deep hole that yeah, you're in. Yeah. But, you know, I think the temptation is going to be there to, uh, well, I'll just put up with that because when I get home, yeah. I can put on my headset for eight hours and really enjoy life. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing that I really have appreciated, even lately, but throughout my life, is the um, companionship that I've enjoyed with good friends the kinds of good experiences we've had together that are unpredictable, you know? You're, they're not scripted. Um, plus, those times when I've needed support, and I've been able to find it, real support from real friends, that makes my life better. Yeah. That doesn't happen in the metaverse. And I think there's all sorts of psychological problems that are going to come about. Uh, you know, you're going to get addicted to this game that's mm-hmm. more satisfying than what you have during the daytime in your real world. Well, that then brings up the next question, the real world. You've got to have a real world because how else are you going to support yourself? Mom and dad. Mom and dad are on the goggles, too. Well, well, you and I won't be, but we'll be supporting the kids that are <laughs> down in the basement at the age of 40. Not putting me. On- <laughs> nope. We are continuing our quest for a uniquely senior slanguage, which we are calling Old Doggerel. 
Today's phrase captures the tendency of some men our age to dye their hair a vibrant color without a hint of gray in the hopes that they are fooling some of the people some of the time. In the first place, no one in their 70s has the hair color of a teenager. And in the second place, you aren't fooling any of the people any of the time. Our old doggerel phrase for these folks is diehards, spelled D-Y-E. We specifically excused women from the phrase diehard because, well, because they can do what they want. We're not stupid, just married. Yeah, you know it. We hope you'll join us in the fun by sending us your suggestions for words or phrases that should be included in Old Doggerel. Go to our website at www.olddogspodcast.com and click on the comments tab. Scroll to the bottom and give us a piece of your mind. If you can afford it. If you think driverless cars are scary, what about a pair of goldfish passing you on the freeway? Oh, no. This pod nugget is from The Guardian for January 8th, 2022. Sometimes the benefits of research aren't always obvious. So we tried hard to understand why some Israeli scientists felt the need to teach goldfish how to drive. It's not like we need more animals on the freeway. One of the researchers explained it this way. So we're always trying to challenge ourselves and our fish. (laughs) The idea of having the fish navigate on land seemed exactly like the impossible sort of challenge we like to tackle. Okay, they first had to come up with a fancy name for their project. The technical term is domain transfer methodology, which means exploring whether a species can perform tasks outside its normal environment. That fits and sounds important. Next, they needed a suitable vehicle for the fish. So the team devised a fish tank on wheels with a computerized camera system that helped the fish connect their swimming to the movements of the vehicle. Their destination was a target that released a food reward when the vehicle touched it. The fish successfully navigated the vehicle to the target from different positions in the room. So, what do you do when you have a successful research project? Well, you You publish, publish. of course. And now it's someone else's problem how to use it. As (laughs) for me, I'm worried about the overqualified goldfish from this experiment who may have trouble finding work in this economy. It's another one of those tech words that sounds important and keeps appearing in publications, so I guess we should try to understand it. It's called the Metaverse. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for January 18th, 2022. Now, as near as we can figure it, the Metaverse is a fully realized digital world. And you participate in this world by creating an avatar, which is a character that represents you. Through virtual reality, you, as your avatar, can lead a digital second life in the metaverse. A rudimentary form of the metaverse can already be found in video games. For example, in the popular game Fortnite, players create a personal avatar and spend hours interacting with the avatars of other players. The complete metaverse is still taking shape, but thanks to a number of things like faster internet connections and sophisticated virtual reality headsets, you can now immerse yourself in a richly animated, lifelike 3D simulation. Now, doesn't this sound like a sci-fi movie, Paul? It's scary. Yeah. An out-of-shape, middle-aged guy finishes his daily four hours of at-home work. 
He eats a microwaved lunch, puts on his virtual reality headset, and starts up a game called Better Than Real Life. In this game, his avatar is young, handsome, and fit. For the rest of his day, he can live in a world that is better than his real life. Ah, so you can see the appeal of the metaverse. So can Google, Microsoft, and Apple, who've been working on metaverse-related technology. Many people in the tech world see a future in which our virtual lives will play as important a role as our actual lives. This kind of digital isolation is going to make us remember fondly smartphones at the dinner table. (laughs) Now it's time for one of my personal favorites, Stump the Older Old Dog. Oh, no. My partner in this podcast, Jim Conlon, is a reasonably educated man. To test how reasonable, I've gathered some interesting facts from the website, interestingfacts.com. <laughs> I am challenging Jim to answer the following five trivia questions. Question number one, Jim, are you ready? I am sort of ready. Which city is farther west? Los Angeles, California, Spokane, Washington, or Reno, Nevada? Oh, this is a trick question, isn't it? Oh, indeed, it, it is, yes. All right, I'm going to say Reno. Oh, you got me. Yeah. It is Reno because California takes that yeah, bend. Curves, bends and sort of eastward. Right. Yeah. Question two, which has more surface area, Canada, Asia, or the moon? Jeez. Come on, you looked at a globe. Yes, I have. I've looked at several globes. Some of them I screw into light fixtures. And you've howled at the moon. I know that. <laughs> um, what's what's the least likely answer? That seems to be my saver. Um, Remember, you want the, the most surface area. Most surface area. Asia. <laughs> Doggone. That's two out of two for you. Asia wins with 17.2 million square miles of surface area. All right, question three. Which is the world's tallest mountain? Mauna Kea in Hawaii, Mount Everest in Nepal, or Mount Chimborazo in Ecuador? Well, this one um, I think may be a trick question because Mauna Kea includes uh, the mass underneath the water. I'm going to go with that one. That's three out of three. Oh, Jim. boy. It rises over 33,000 feet from the ocean Ocean floor. floor. Question four, in what city in the United States can you drive south to reach Canada? Oh, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, (laughs) Anchorage, Alaska, (laughs) Detroit, Michigan, or Bangor, Maine. (laughs) I know, it's your home city. You, You should have been able to answer that. And finally, question five, which state has the most shoreline? California, Florida, or Minnesota? Are you going to tell me it's Minnesota, Paul? Your home state? You have to guess. (laughs) You have to guess. Okay. Well, again, with the least likely answer, I'm going with Minnesota. Doug, got it. You got five out of five. Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes, has 90,000 miles of shoreline. Because of the lakes. Okay, Jim, uh, this is 100%. I may have to give up on stumping the older old dog. Well, maybe we'll turn the tables next time. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Practically every comedian who has made it big knows Rich Scheidner. He's a very funny guy who has done stand-up forever, but even people who haven't seen him perform have laughed at his jokes 
in some of America's funniest TV shows. We caught you preening, <laughs> stroking your beard. I was thinking. That's my thinking move now. Oh, is it? Okay. I'll have to keep that in mind. Okay. Well, let's start by asking you, where, what are you thinking? I'm thinking this is a hell of a place to do an interview. I'm in the parking lot of the Hard Rock Casino in Tampa. I just dropped my 88 and 89-year-old parents off to get their gamble on. Oh, okay. Got it. Uh, I tell you what, to get us started, Rich, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and what steered you towards comedy. I'm from a small town in South Jersey. I went to Washington, D.C. to go to law school. It wasn't a great law school. It was International School of Law and Lawnmower Repair. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, they wanted to make sure you had a backup. So uh, I was going there, and a friend of mine, I was funny. I, I was always funny. And uh, he said, you know, you got to go do this. I don't even know if we knew to call it stand-up. He just took me over to a coffee house. I got one of those five-minute sets where nothing but one, you know. <laughs> That's right. I got, I got heckled by two guys playing chess. They went, they shushed me. They shushed me. But, you know, to a beginning comic, one, it was enough. That was it. That was <laughs> enough. I go, because I knew instinctively, because that's the whole game, right, of going from making your friends laugh in the moment to making strangers laugh in demand. That's the transition every stand-up has to make. And I kept coming back. And as the laughs got bigger, I had the addiction grew. It's a good way to describe it. It is addiction, isn't it? That live connection uh, and that, that reinforcement. Laughter is nothing but pure approval, uncut approval there. Well, you know, Rich, you really uh, kind of track the history and growth of stand-up comedy, you know, from the late 70s through the 80s. And, and I'm particularly interested in your comment about how this, at an early point in your career, how did you make those choices and, and what did you follow to build a career as a comic? There were a lot of scenes started in the 70s around the country. Houston, you know, had one. Stand-up scenes. They were little informal, some bar would do a comedy night. All of a sudden, the comics moved in. There was a Boston scene, Chicago scene, Philadelphia scene. There were scenes. Not connected. There was no internet. We didn't even know each other existed. San Francisco. And, of course, the big two poles were Los Angeles and New York. So I was in a, a scene in Washington, D.C. There were just a bunch of people who end up having careers in comedy in one way or another. And then a professional comedy club opened. The first one east of the Mississippi that paid comics from New York and L.A. to come and perform. Garvin's in Washington, D.C. I became house MC, and then I met all these New York comics and L.A. comics. In 78, I drove out to check out the comedy store, and I can't remember who the doorman was. I want to think it was Sam Kennison, but I'm not really sure. <laughs> I, I was bringing joints to bribe my way in because I, I had a <laughs> friend of mine from high school who was a huge dealer in L.A. at that point. I remember smoking a joint with him in the parking lot in Westwood, whoever this was. And he said, I can't get on stage here. Don't come to L.A. You can't get on stage. So I moved to New York. But once I met these people in New York, I knew they were obsessively all in and I had to go all in. So I wanted to go where people were all in. And New York was the place for me. Then in 82, my first wife, Carol Liefer, got a pilot with Barry Levinson's. So she wanted to move to L.A. And I was like, well, I can drink and do drugs and comedy in L.A. as well as I can do in New York. No big deal. It's just like, what didn't matter to me. I was going to be up until six in the morning, wherever I was. You know, in the 80s, there was an explosive growth of comedy clubs around the country. In fact, there were seven or eight of them here in Houston. Can you tell us a little about that? Well, the, all these showcase clubs 
in New York and L.A. There were like 100 comics in New York and maybe more in L.A. Then comedy clubs started popping open. Um, I mean, just everywhere. And of course, these comics who were in New York and L.A. ran out to feed them. And if you had time, like I was always addicted to time. I was always addicted to being on stage longer. That meant more material. I was always writing. If you could do 45 minutes and hold the crowd, you were a headliner and they didn't care that you had no TV credits. I think my first TV credit was the evening at the improv in 82. The clubs were packed. Well, you know, for, for people that aren't that familiar with the, the comedy scene at that time, uh, it, this formalized a three comic setup for a show. There was an opening act, right. a MC, a middle act, right. and, and then the, the headliner. Do you want to explain a little bit about that? How you graduated yeah, it, from one I, to the other? Were, they, they kind of settle on, and I don't know if it's just showbiz tradition, like an hour and a half would be an optimal amount of show. They go, they'll do an optimal amount of show. Well, it was very, of course, at first, very, you know, well, who goes on first? We just kind of flip coins or draw strokes. But it became very apparent very quickly who should close and who should open. And then it started forming with the time. Well, if you're going to open, we're not giving you a half an hour. We're giving you 10, 15 and the middle person should get, uh, you know, 20 to 25. And then the person closing, since they're pulling the weight, they should get the most time, 45 an hour, whatever. The word is that comics love to steal from each other and take credit for the material. How much of that really went on or still goes on? Well, you know, back in the 1940s, 1950s, even before that, there was always stealing. And it was sort of like, you know, irritating. But when Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul and that generation turned it into an art form to where what the comic said became who the comic was on stage, mm. then the material became personal to the comic and thievery went from a misdemeanor to a felony. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about sitcoms. You worked as a writer on several sitcoms. Why don't you tell us about that progression from stand-up to writer? I always liked to write. I always felt like I was a better writer than performer. So... I had five pilot deals back in the late 80s, early 90s, and none of those pilots became series. My agency, William Morris, at the last one said, well, we can't figure out what to do with you now anymore. So they dropped me. They gave me a whole, they go, here's a whole bunch of dates we booked for you. No commission. It's our parting gift. <laughs> I realized back in my hotel at six in the morning, I'm not making any headway as a stand-up. I got a kid. I got a wife. A friend of mine said, look, every." You know, you're, you're a writer, really. Try to find a, a sitcom writing job, you know. I called everybody I knew at a series at the time, left messages with Tim Allen and Seinfeld and Roseanne. Roseanne called me back that night and said, you want a job? Show up at the studio tomorrow. She just happened to have fired a bunch of people. <laughs> and I started my writing career with Roseanne. That's a good sign. Yeah. So what was it like in the writer's room? Roseanne had a whole bunch of stand-ups who would start off just punching up jokes and then you hopefully stick around long enough to become an actual writer of scripts. And it's a tough transition for a stand-up to go from being your, your show is you to being uh, just a little cog in a wheel. But uh, you kept your hand in performing live all during this time, right? Yeah, because the, the season went in, I wouldn't even know if I was coming back next year. I mean, I didn't have no job security. I never was on a show like, everybody loves Raymond where they all knew they're coming back year after year after year. They're just going for a hiatus. They could take a vacation. I would go on a hiatus. Go, I got to go out and make some money doing stand-up. So I kept touring, kept doing it. But eventually by about 97, I'd had a few more uh, writing jobs on different shows. 
And I was looking at myself less and less like a stand-up, more as a writer. And, of course, the stand-up scene was changing. I think I did my last Tonight Show with Jay Leno like 96 or 97. And I, then I didn't do much stand-up after that for years. And you have sort of evolved into an historian of comedy. Would you not say that? I definitely would say I am. I'm, I have a huge library filled with books, biographies, books about comedy, history of comedy. I got into it when I met Phyllis Diller. Uh, she called me up after my third tonight show and said we should be friends and we did we became friendly and i'd go have lunch with her once in a while and she'd love to talk about comedy and history of it she said i should write a book about it i tried writing a book but it ended up reading like a dry history book mm. and i couldn't find the funny in it right and my wife said go on stage that's where you find the funny and see if you can find the funny in this history stuff and that's what i did and i created this show uh, a history of stand-up comedy What's the reaction been to that presentation? Comics who have seen it love it. That's what I care most about. And regular oh. people love it. I mean, uh. people who are not comics, hmm. they get into it. It's, a, you know, it's information. I have insights that I've made and observations I've made. And then I actually have jokes that I found that could work, still work today. And that's the thing about comedy. You know, it doesn't time travel well. It's mostly tied to the era it's performed. But I've managed to, to, to keep trying jokes till I found ones that work for certain comics and, and, and explain something about that era. So it says something about America. Uh, the, these comics, you know, they become popular because they hit the zeitgeist perfectly. It's the most reflective art form. It's the most combustible. It's the most short lived, but it's, it reflects America great at any particular moment. Okay, Rich. Well, with all that behind you, what's ahead of you? Do you have any thoughts about retiring? You know, people say, like, when are you going to retire? Go, retire from what? I mean, I don't work. I do stand-up comedy. I, I do. I, I love doing what I'm doing. So creatively, I'm always going to do something as long as I can. Yeah. I don't have hobbies like golf. I like to fish once in a while. I like to hike. I like to get out. But I, I'm, not, I'm not looking to retire to something. I'm not grinding it out. I, this, this thing is just something I've always loved doing. So how do you occupy your time these days? What do you divide it up? Among? I write, I write, I write, I write, I write. I'm rewriting. I wrote a script about the first stand-up comic, Artemis Ward. I wrote a script about him. And over the last few months, I realized I needed to take it in a different direction, edge it up a little bit, do some things to it. So um, I'm rewriting that script now. And when I finish that, I'm going to write something else. I'm going to keep writing. I'm going to keep doing things. Mm. That's what I want to do. And yeah. so the performance aspect, I go out and cruise ships once in a while. That's a nice little income. It's like a writer's retreat for me. That's nice. And um, and the stand-up history show. But other than that, I'm not looking to tour the country doing the stand-up history show. You've got two books. Can you explain uh, the two books you've published? Yeah, well, first book, uh, Mark Schiff, and I did this uh, book in uh, 2005 called I Killed. And it was just, I was working on Blue Collar TV, and all the comics would sit in the writer's room telling road stories. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I noticed all the hallway was filled with people listening in. And this woman said, you should put that together in a book. And I did with Mark Schiff. So that's just stories from all sorts of different comics. Jay Leno, Seinfeld, Chris Rock. Then in 2016, I wrote a, a book about my experience during the 80s, where I just said how I got into doing stand-up comedy. And I tried to break down the whole 80s comedy explosion. That's called uh, Kicking Through the Ashes. Yeah. And they're both available on Amazon, right? Amazon, yes. Yeah. Amazon. You've got a great website, uh, richscheidner.com. 
Uh, it's really yes. well well designed website that leads to some of the podcasts you've been on, right? Uh, some of your thoughts about the history of comedy. Uh, Thanks, Paul. Rich, what a pleasure it's been to reconnect with you, my friend. After all these years, I'm so pleased that you're still flourishing. You're still pissing Thank people you. off from that uh, honk in the background. <laughs> <laughs> like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.